Welcome to the Stratcom podcast series. I'm Omar Kablan. I'm a presenter at TRT World. I host the show there called Double Check. Today we'll be talking about disinformation and crisis. And I have Professor Dr. Timothy Coombs with me, who is a professor in the Bullard and Department of Communication at Texas A&M University. And his primary areas of research are crisis communication and CSR. He is also an author of an award-winning book called Ongoing Crisis Communication, and he's won many awards for his crisis communication research from various organizations. Professor Coombs, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for asking me. So just, for, just to kick it off, can we just talk about crisis communication, your area of expertise? What is that exactly? Yeah, crisis communication is when you bring to life your crisis management efforts. Organizations should have a crisis management plan and a team, people who come together to help manage the crisis. And crisis communication is how they take the plan and they take their various decisions and the information they gather and bring their crisis response to life. So that, that's kind of how I, I view crisis communication. And the goal of crisis communication is to really sort of ease the threat and the harm being caused by a crisis and to ease that for both the stakeholders who are affected by the crisis as well as the organization in crisis. Can you give us a, a real life example of it? Uh, yes, quite often an organization, let's say for instance, food manufacturers, they produce products that for one reason or another become contaminated and then they're a risk to their customers. In the U.S., we've had then the need to sort of recall these harmful products like lettuce, you name it, apples, you, you name the, the fruit or vegetables probably been recalled at some point in time. And it, it's recalled because it's a product harm crisis. And what you do as an organization is you need to make your customers aware that there's a problem so that they don't consume that product and, and injure themselves in any way, and tell them what they need to do to get rid of that product, including being reimbursed for the, for the purchase of that product. You know, just recently, there was ham being recalled in the United States because they found pieces of metal in them. And not that eating tiny pieces of metal is that harmful, but it's not good for you and it shouldn't be in your ham. But that's an example of how you might use crisis communication. And so how would you deal with people in the scenario of a crisis? I mean, what are some methods to effectively communicate to, you know, make sure people aren't panicking and it's just not getting out of control? What type of methods would be used? The key really is to be as transparent as possible with your stakeholder and kind of focus on their needs. So as an organization, you need to ask yourself, what do these stakeholders need? You know, do they need specific information to help them to cope? in some way physically? Do they need to say evacuate an area or return a product? And also trying to help them to cope psychologically with the problem because I think that that's a point when you mentioned, are they going to panic or not? Part of that is their psychological comfort level. And a part of effective crisis communication is making sure you kind of address their emotional and psychological needs as well. And a key component of that is explaining to them what you're doing to prevent a repeat of the crisis because the anxiety that arises out of a crisis in large part is due to a concern that this could happen again and maybe be worse. And if you're saying what you're doing to prevent it, then that helps to reduce the anxiety. And one of the best examples of that was in the United States and uh, Johnson & Johnson coming up with tamper-resistant packaging after there had been product tampering with its Tylenol a pain reliever. 
that was critical to restoring confidence. The same thing with Boeing and you know their Supermax. They they have to convince people that they have fixed the problem and that it's safe to fly on these planes. So, is one of the challenges within crisis communication disinformation? Is that is that one of the challenges that needs to be dealt with? Uh, d- definitely, uh, disinformation is becoming a greater problem, and that's due mainly to social media being able to so widely spread disinformation. Because what you have in a crisis is that you're trying to get out very specific information designed to help people. And when disinformation comes along, that can block your message and put in the wrong information, leading people to make wrong decisions. It can be as simple as people don't understand what products are actually in a recall. So they might get rid of products that aren't harmful to them and consume products that are harmful to them. And we had some instances of concerns with that when there was a a recall related to uh, peanut paste in the United States a number of years ago. But anytime that information, the disinformation comes out, it can displace the proper information. And we're seeing a lot of that occurring now uh, around COVID-19 and the pandemic. So just to kind of bring it back to layman's terms a little bit, for example, recently I was watching a a blockbuster called Deep Impact, a 90s blockbuster, and it was about a meteor heading towards earth, right? So for example, right now on social media, you mentioned if there was news agencies that tweeted out, let's say on Twitter saying a meteor is about to hit earth. Is that a, would that be a scenario where government agencies, various institutions need to bring this crisis under control? Is this what we're talking about? Yeah, that would, that would be a very good example that there's this risk out there and if some groups are wrongly presenting that this risk is going to then create a, a crisis, such as a, a meteor strike, a large meteor strike, that would be information that would need to be debunked in some way. The government would have to explain, like, well, no, yeah, yes, we have identified this object. It's going to come close. And, and, and close in terms of space is sort of relative, you know, like it can be, you know, still, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles off, but that can be close. And just trying to clarify what all that means for people, because it's easy for that information to circulate and there's a potential then for panic to spread. And generally, if the population is well-informed, historically, there's been a very low level of panic if, the, you know, if authorities can address them with, with the correct information. Disinformation, though, creates more of a problem and is more likely to lead to panic because it's based upon sensationalizing that information because that's what helps it spread virally online. So when we talk about, for example, the pandemic, which we're still in, how do you kind of review what happened? Obviously, all governments reacted differently. Some made harsher measures, put harsher measures in place. Some were more um, lenient. So in general, though, how do you see this you know, global crisis being managed? I think generally public health officials had the right approach to try and give sort of a very reasoned approach and a reasoned explanation. But that was very hard because initially... So little was known about the virus, and as the situation changed, their communication changed, and people took that as inconsistency, and that's a big risk because in crisis communication, inconsistency is seen as a real problem because people then aren't sure what they should believe. Like, oh, well, why why didn't you tell me that before? You told me one thing, now you tell me another. Maybe you don't know what you're really doing, or maybe you've been lying to me. And that wasn't the case with the pandemic. It was just they, they didn't know. And that's why there was oftentimes sort of some conflicting information. So I think public health officials did the best they could 
given the circumstances. And in many countries, and you know, my home country, the U.S., is an example of that. The issue became politicized so that if you did something to try and prevent the spread of the virus, that meant you supported a certain political view, and therefore you you don't engage in social distancing. You you don't wear uh, face covering because you're showing you support your political side, and that just made it a lot harder. And it's still it's still a problem here within the United States because that issue became so politicized, and why we compared to probably most European nations have a much lower vaccination rate as a result of that. And can we just talk about the question of ethics? I mean, how important are they to be considered when a crisis occurs? Yeah, the the ethics is critical. And that's where you see the the problems with disinformation and misinformation coming in, because those are, in most cases, purposeful deception and are highly unethical. And what they're doing is they're eroding really ethical attempts by public officials in the case of the pandemic to get out the best information to try and protect the population. And that's the key aspect in any crisis, who's ever managing the crisis, their number one concern needs to be the people impacted negatively by the crisis, what we sometimes call the crisis victims. And that's the ethical response is to show concern and to address their needs. The unethical concerns are when organizations get into a crisis and they're only concerned about their bottom line. What's, how does this impact me? And all their decisions are driven by financial concerns. That's a very unethical approach because it it leads to further harm to stakeholders and in many cases withholding information that would have been beneficial to stakeholders. So that's why the people affected, those victims need to be center stage whenever you're doing crisis communication. So when I was researching crisis communication, I came across certain theories and models. In fact, the, one of the, the theories, the situational crisis communication, your name kept popping up with that one. <laughs> Can you just explain what that is and what these theories and models are, are supposed to, to do? Yeah, in general, these models are supposed to provide additional guidance for crisis communicators. The idea is that crisis communicators draw heavily upon their own experiences and their training, but research can give them some additional information that they can then add in to their existing knowledge. So it's not a replacement for what a practitioner knows, but it's supposed to supplement that that they look at these theories and these models and see how it could apply to the situation they're in. Because sometimes people think, oh, this, this is meant to replace the practitioner. No, it's, it's a supplement to the practitioner, the professionals, the crisis communicators who are out there. And my theory is situational crisis communication theory identifies specific cues you identify within the crisis situation that help guide your response. And at the core of that is anytime you know you're really in a crisis, You need to begin by addressing the physical and the psychological needs of the crisis victims. And then after you've taken care of that, you read the cues. And if it's it's a really bad situation, meaning the cues indicate people think, wow, you're really responsible for this crisis. Then you add in sort of uh, additional strategies that might help, what, what are called reputation management strategies. That can include, you know, issuing these public apologies that you often see out there. You can also be offering additional compensation to victims. And you, you do that when the situation is, is really bad. And by really bad, I mean, you're strongly responsible for a crisis. In most situations where it's like, yeah, you clearly are responsible, but you didn't do anything purposeful or intentional. It just sort of happened. Then that idea of just addressing stakeholder concerns about physical and psychological safety is enough in, in those cases. So in generally you trying to understand the situation to better pick your crisis response and 
developing an optimal response that benefits both the victims and the organization in crisis. So just to stick with that a little bit more, can part of it be actually denying that there is a crisis or you know, maybe choosing a scapegoat, something like that? I, I would say nowadays that if you're denying, you can only deny if you're not really in a crisis, that this could be a case where there is misinformation, disinformation, that your organization is involved in some sort of practices that they shouldn't be, they're doing something that shouldn't be done that way. And that information is wrong. And we're actually seeing a rise in that. And that's actually anticipated to increase in the near future. Then you have to deny. And your denial is really an explanation of what really happens. Like, well, people are saying my corporation is doing X, Y, and Z. We're not. We're not involved in that. We are not involved. We are, we are not using you know, child labor. We, we do not have facilities in a certain location. So you'll, that's the only time denial is really viable. Scapegoating is always a very risky strategy because one of the things people want in a crisis is for an organization to somehow be accountable for what they have done. And scapegoating tries to escape, tries to get, tries to get away from that. So that's why it's so dangerous and there's a risk of it backfiring. Because yes, there are cases, what organizations used to do is like, well, that problem was created by someone in our supply chain, not us. And what their customers and other stakeholders are telling them is, well, that's not good enough. If it's in your supply chain, it's still your responsibility. You're still accountable for those actions. So for instance, when Mattel, a number of years ago, a supplier used lead-based paint when they weren't supposed to, Mattel couldn't just scapegoat the supplier and say, oh, well, that supplier, you know, they put that lead-based paint on it. Because in the end, it has their name on it and children are at risk from using their products, so they need to be held accountable for it. So denial can't really be used if you're in an actual crisis. It'll, it'll come back to heart, hurt you. And, and companies have tried that. You know, they, they have tried it, but it, it comes back to haunt them. And scapegoating can be risky as well. They're really interesting strategies. Can you just also talk about if these ones still exist? Because, you know, just reading the news and so on, I feel like, you know, denial, scapegoating, these are still very commonly used tactics. Can you talk about attacking the accuser uh, and apology, apologizing? Those two are quite interesting too. Sure. Yeah. The denial and scapegoating are used quite a bit. Organizations want to try and avoid any you know, ill effects from a crisis on them. And they see denial and scapegoating as a way to do that. Although, again, most of the time, those, those are going to fail on you. Attacking the accuser, you're seeing this because you're seeing accusations being put forth online in this, in this digital world, accusing the organization of behaviors. Oftentimes, nowadays, it's about be, engaging in irresponsible behavior in some way. And you might have to attack the accuser by going after saying, no, th this group has a particular agenda, and they're trying to use us to advance that agenda. So you can have these attacks. You know, there's, there's an attack on the company, and then, then you counterattack you have to be real careful with those, though, because when you attack the accuser and you're a big corporation, you're sometimes looked at as a bully that you're, you're mm -hmm. picking on. Even these smaller you know, non-government organizations, these NGOs, who are actually kind of large, people still view them as small. And so there's, there's a risk with attack the accuser. And the apology is where you just openly take responsibility for the crisis in some way. And and people have tried to say there's a specific formula for apology, but uh, the reality is there's a lot of different actions and words you can take that will be perceived as an apology. And it, it really kind of centers around, it looks like you're taking responsibility for what has happened. 
And that's positive, and that's that's a good response. It's often recommended for groups. Um, in in the United States, though, um, companies are are hesitant to apologize because apologies bring with them legal ramifications. Because right. if you accept responsibility, then in any lawsuits to come out, you're going to lose those lawsuits because you've publicly admitted you're responsible. But uh, that's part of the the oddities of the U.S. legal system. So, in general, though. If a company is in a crisis, do you think, and we spoke about ethics, in your opinion, you know, is it very important for them to protect the reputation of the company? I think by effectively managing a crisis, that's how you best protect the reputation of the company. Because when you go in, as, as a crisis manager, you can look at what's, what, is, what is going to be my main concern. Am I going to do everything I can to protect my organizational reputation? And that's going to lead you in the direction of denial scapegoating, other types of strategies? Or do you say, I'm going to put the victims first. And by putting the victims first, my response is going to look so good that people are going to feel better about me because of my response. Because you know the crisis is the threat. But every threat, by definition, is also an opportunity. And the opportunity is how you manage the crisis. If you manage a crisis very effectively, and by very effectively, I mean focusing on the victims of the crisis, that will then become the memory people have of the crisis, not that it happened, but by how well you managed it. And it's, a, it's not that you're, you're building your reputation, but you're helping to kind of gain back your reputation by showing how well you've handled the crisis. And so if, if you look at that, what are my routes to protect my reputation? I can go all in and just focus everything on my reputation. And that probably will not work that well. And a good example of that is, BP during the Deepwater Horizon crisis, that, their initial response was protect, protect, protect. And, and they were viewed negatively until they switched and started focusing on the victims. But if you begin from the victims at the very start, that enhances your reputation long-term. The problem is the difference between a short-term and a long-term game. Scapegoating and denial seem like a really nice short-term strategy because I can prevent damage. But an effective response where I'm focusing on the victims, that's a long-term investment because it's going to take some time for that to yield some benefits for me. And like in a few weeks, a few months, and even in a few years, I'm going to see the benefits of that. So I'm just looking at some case studies now of crisis communication. So there's the pandemic, which we talked about, uh, the United Express flight 3411 incident, MH370 disappearance, the Gulf Mm -hmm. oil spill. So there's many of these uh, case studies. Uh, do you think that with each crisis, other companies learn from each other? They should, and I, there's some evidence that they do, but but some don't. Um, and and that's part of how whether or not you invest time and money into crisis management. Companies that invest in crisis management, one of the things they do is they follow the crises of other companies in their industry. And like, what can I learn from that? I see what they're doing. Oh, that's good. I'm going to try that. Or oh, that's bad. I, I'm not going to do that in the future. You know, any airline should have looked at United situations and decided, all right, we're never going to bring police in to drag a passenger off a plane. That, 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 that's, <laughs> that's just something that we can't afford to do in the future. And, and they do talk about you know, that. That's why it's good to have crisis, a crisis management team because there's this concept known as vicarious learning. And you study the case studies of people in your industry to learn more about it. So let's just end on that. I mean, are there are many companies now, do they have a crisis management team? Is this kind of becoming more and more 
the trend? Companies actually starting up these departments or do you think it's still relatively low? It's not as important for companies these days. Um, it's, it's fairly common within very large corporations, probably somewhere around 60% of large corporations, 60 to 70% will have a crisis management team. And those that have at least a crisis management plan, that tends to hover between somewhere between 80 and 90%, depending upon the year the survey is done, kind of find out what's going on. So uh, among large corporations, yes, this is a fairly common and accepted practice. Uh, in, in part, it's, it's up there with sort of best practices that if what should your company have? Well, it should have crisis management as part of it. Smaller companies, medium to small companies, don't have as much information on that. Generally, they don't have dedicated crisis departments. They, they just don't have the resources for that. They're, so they're much more at risk from crises because they don't have the resources to put into the planning and the preparation and, and having a, a distinct unit that would handle crises. Professor Timothy Coombs, thank you so much. That was a very enlightening contribution towards crisis communication. Thanks for joining the Stratcom podcast. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you.